Welcome to The Jay Davis Show. Today, I'll be co-hosting with my friend, Jess Larson. Jess, do you want to kick us off? Today on the show, we've got Joe DeSena, CEO, founder of Spartan Race. Joe, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So if somebody happens to be living under a rock and, and doesn't know Spartan, can you give us the elevator pitch? Well, they must know ancient Sparta, right? Because every country we go, everybody knows, and not even from the movie, but just through history. So Sparta, right? They were probably the toughest warriors around, maybe even today. Massive respect for the military, so I don't want to take anything away from the military, but but these guys only had like a thong, a spear, and a shield. <laughs> they were going to their death. They didn't have any any heavy duty equipment, so that was ancient sport. And we just we really just fast forwarded those principles to today, and that's expressed in a race, that's expressed in training, that's expressed in in our, our nutrition philosophy, in the way we tackle merchandise. So. We are just trying to create modern day warriors. Not everybody ends up in the military. I wish everybody did do a year of service, but this is like the end of the military for a day. And, and hopefully it, it becomes part of your life, right? Where not that you're crawling under barbed wire, jumping over walls, swimming through ice cold water, but you're approaching life in, in a little more of an aggressive manner. You're not running from things, but you're, you're running straight into them, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, of course, I had heard of Spartan Race and these kind of things. My brother and best friend went to University on Track scholarships and they run your races. And But I didn't know it was that much different than like the mud races or these kind of things. But the, the day I became a big fan of yours is when I watched your interview with Stephen Pressfield, of who I'm like an undying fan of. And I was like, OK, that's what that guy thinks. I got to learn more about this guy and this stuff. How fun was that interview for you? That was great. I actually... I don't know where I was yesterday, but we were talking about Stephen Pressfield. So obviously he wrote The War of Art. He wrote Gates of Fire, amazing author and, and historian of Sparta. And so it was great to sit with that expert and I don't know, just share notes. But the biggest takeaway for him, for me, was this idea that we're all going to face resistance on a daily basis. For him, that resistance is a blank piece of paper that he has to write on, right? He's got to come up with ideas that people are going to consume. And when you accept that, when you realize, wait, like it's never going to get easier. Matter of fact, I would argue life gets harder from the day you're born until the day you're dead. It would be an upward sloping trajectory, right? It just gets harder and harder and harder than you die. When you accept that, then maybe you better prepare for it each day and you, and you just put your head down and stop complaining and just get it done. So big takeaway for me, hanging out with him, big fan of his. That's awesome. One of the things I love about your career and something I wanted to ask you about, how, how do you encourage both entrepreneurs, but other people exactly with what you were just saying? I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like, how do I get the big win and then sit on an island for the rest of my life and never do anything? How do you encourage people to keep going after it? Because I think you obviously love the pursuit of challenges and reaching goals. How do you, how do you help people to see that it's not just like a, a sprint, but that life and entrepreneurship and career is, is something that's to be pursued throughout your life? I think it's my biggest challenge. I think it's our biggest challenge, the three of us and anybody that's trying to push people out of their comfort zone and get them healthy to... Just keep continuing to tackle life and just suck every ounce of marrow out of it. That's a tough thing to sell. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you in the audience that all day, every single day, the thought crosses my mind that I got to get back to the farm and just pack it in because <laughs> this is hard work. But that's been going on like Stephen Pressfield's, right? That's been going on my whole life and it's been going on everybody's whole life. And it's just, a great analogy would be like when you're running a uh, one mile, 10 miles, hundred miles, whatever it is, your mind is telling you to quit. And then you've got to fight that instinct. You got to fight that voice and get through because so many good things happen when you get to the end. 
I heard a great one recently, which maybe sums up the answer to your question, which is, you know, it's always 99% effort and work and 1% reward, always. So if you're not enjoying that work, that journey, you're probably not enjoying life, right? Because it's, it's all work. And so then how do you convince somebody? After, like I, I was with my buddy this morning, I stayed over his house, my best friend, he, he makes, you know, 25 million plus a year. And he's been doing that for a long time. And, you know, if I'm you or me or, you know, anybody listening, like, why, why would he continue? Why does he, why did he go to work this morning? Why did he just pack it in? And he and I are both from Queens, New York. And where we grew up, like, you just don't stop. You just, you're always, it's always hustling. You're always working because you enjoy that 99%. So, you know, I don't know if I gave a good answer there. It's, it's the one thing that I struggle with every day is how to get people fired up. And nothing drives me crazier than a bunch of people sleepwalking through life. It's a tough one. It's yeah. tough. I will tell you one thing. When you sign up for a tough event, it's going to sound like I'm a late night sales pitch, pitchman here, but I'm not on, on this. If you sign up for a tough event, it doesn't have to be a Spartan, could be whatever, a 5K, bike race, you name it. It does trigger a bunch of things into action. It, it calls your all cells in your body into action. And you're going to bed a little earlier, you're drinking a little less, you're waking up a little, right? Stuff starts to happen. So I guess for my buddy and his example, making all that money every year and having enough to just rest on the island, he just continues to challenge himself. He continues to sign up for those difficult things. Not in the sense, let's say, of that bike race I described, but like he took a new job, a bigger job, bigger challenge, bigger responsibility. Per, you know, his, his whole reputation's on the line. And so I guess, I guess that's my answer is you are naturally going to retreat to the island if you're just not constantly putting yourself out there outside your comfort zone and and putting your neck on the line. Is that, yeah. is that a good answer? Oh, I think it's a great answer. Uh, our kids, our kind of family motto is you can do hard things. And I think that that's something that we're missing and, and exactly what you were saying. I mean, that natural instinct to want to just relax and retreat. And so I think that's what's so amazing about Spartan. And I'd love to hear more about kind of some of the results you've seen as people have gone through this extremely hard thing that they didn't think they could do. How do you think that impacts the rest of their life? I think it changes their frame of reference. For me, a frame of reference is a pair of goggles or glasses you're wearing through life, right? It encapsulates your experiences, your beliefs, your values. And those glasses are either, you know, really, really clean and shiny and, and you know, they, they view things like carrying the laundry basket up the stairs is difficult. Or they could be, you know, marred and dirty and like, like in Mad Max, those goggles, right? And that happens. You change those goggles. You change that frame of reference when you do hard things and you come out the other side. Because what happens is you say to yourself, you know what? Carrying this laundry basket upstairs is not so bad. At least I'm not, you know, three quarters away up Everest like I was last week. Right. And so if you got <laughs> if you've got some frame of reference, some point that you could refer to, uh, it just makes your current day so much. You know, that's why I carry the kettlebell. That's why I do the burpees. That's why I take the cold showers. That's why Seneca, right, the Stoic, would, would supposedly go out in the streets and live like a bum, even though he was very wealthy, because he just needed to reset and change that frame of reference so that started to appreciate it, the things he had around. You know, they say happiness is wanting what you have. I love that saying. And when you go through tough times and you don't have water and food and shelter, you start to appreciate everything you have. When you don't go through tough times and you've got everything at your fingertips and push a button and lay naked like Gary Vee says and watch Netflix, you don't appreciate anything. Matter of fact, you're upset when the Wi-Fi doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested. You, 
you've got such consistency over the years, you know, back watching your old TED Talk from six years ago and, you know, 60 Minutes and all these media things. This mission you have to yank people off the couch is something that's obviously not just a marketing shtick. Like, that's something that seems to be really in your core. I'm interested, you know, a couple of things that Jay and I are staring at on the computer screen here. One of them is on Spartan.com. Can you explain to people the difference between, like, we're looking at events you've got coming up, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, all over, but you've got these, a super, a sprint, a beast, these things. Can you, A, tell us a little bit about what the difference is, and B, from a business perspective, can you talk to us about why you decided to, you know, have offerings for more than just the elite athlete? Yeah, well, I, well, I wish I could tell you that it's because I'm a genius, but I'm not a genius. I play the same tape over and over, as you pointed out. 10 years ago, I was doing interviews. This is what you're going to hear from me. And I think about, number one, what motivates me, what I'd be interested in, what would scare me, right? what would get me in shape. And I just apply that to the business. So I think about that. I think about myself. I think, you know, every year, or even when you first get into anything endurance related or or physically challenging, you start at a place, start at a 5K, half marathon, whatever it is. And once you check that box, in most cases, you, you want to taste a little more. You're like, I want to do, I want to do a little more. So for us, it was whether the person is just getting into this or looking at it on an annual basis, the way I would do it is I'd start something small in January, February, come out and do a sprint, three plus miles, move forward a little longer in the year and come out and test yourself and do eight plus miles. Towards the end of the year, at least this is what I found was interesting for me. And, you know, 1.3 million people a year now kind of follow this routine. And then do a beast, which is a half marathon, which is about equal to a full marathon when you throw in, you know, 35 obstacles. And if you finish all those in a calendar year, you earn the coveted trifecta. Now, why did I do that? Because I'm trying to get people to change their habits. And going out and doing a three-mile race doesn't change your habits. But when you're training all year to get this trifecta done, before you know it, you got new friends, you got new habits, you're drinking a little less, like everything is better in your life. So that is that. Now, above that, I go even a little further with things like the agogi or the death race or the hurricane heat. And that's because I found for myself, there are moments in time where I'm like, screw it. I'm going for broke. Like, let's, let's, really, let's really do this. And so the agogi is 60 hours, the death race is 72 hours. And those are like just completely life-changing experiences. That's like climbing Everest. That's like, you know, going through buds. So yeah, hopefully that gives a good description of what we do. Yeah, you bet. You know, as Jay and I were preparing for this interview, we've been doing a mini-series where we've been talking to a bunch of venture capitalists and a bunch of rapidly growing startups. And I think one of the questions Jay brought up earlier was, you know, at the color run, he was part of the team that ramped that up to 100 million bucks. But, you know, it hasn't stood the test of time. It's not the big deal it was. And, you know, there are so many races that are kind of a fad, frankly, and they don't retain, they don't have compound interest going. And we were really interested to hear some of your ideas about maybe what you think you've done differently and how that could apply to people outside the race industry. Well, very early on, I said to myself, Woodstock was a big event, but it happened once maybe twice. The Olympics was a big event, but it happens all the time, right? It happens every four years, every two years. So how do I get that kind of staying power? Number one, that's how I thought about it from, as a business person. But on the other side, and I apologize to you guys saying this, like I just wasn't interested in being involved in something like the color run. I wasn't interested in being involved in something where we were just splashing a bunch of beer around and listening to music. 
I just personally, doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean lots of people don't get great benefit from those. I just wasn't interested in it. So for me, how do I get stickiness? How do I get longevity? How do I do something I really love? Well, that's sport. That's legitimate, right? Like the military to me seems very legit. Combat sports, very legit. CrossFit, legit. And so I just wanted to be legit. And I think an authentic would be a word that comes to mind. And so when you think about things that kind of grow in popularity and, and, and disappear, they're probably not legit. They're probably not very authentic. They probably don't emulate the Olympics where people time themselves and rank themselves and see how do they do better, right? How does it become aspirational? So uh, that's the way I thought about it. And I think that's why we're still here. No, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, even being there, I think another key difference I can see is that there's a deeper purpose, that there's something beyond just the, hey, let's build a, a business that's big and makes a lot of money. And I think there were some other goals, but I, I think that that is a key difference. There was a bigger purpose, a bigger mission behind Spartan than a lot of the fun runs. I mean, they were just kind of like, oh, let's do this cool thing and make a lot of money. How do you inspire or how do you kind of represent that to your customer and help them feel like they're a part of that? Well, I do these podcasts, we write books, and then I think it just oozes out of me. I think there was never a business plan. It was always, basically it was my mom's mission that I picked up, which is just to get people healthy. And I tend to joke and say, look, if I get a hundred million people healthy, I get a free pass to heaven. But <laughs> you know, part, it, it's partly a joke and partly like, you know, I'm 50 now, at some point I'm going. No, nobody gets out of this thing alive. So it would be nice to do some good. What the hell am I gonna do with a bunch of money dead? I told my kids we were on a ski, ski chairlift once, me and three of my children, we have four children. And I said, you know, when I die, I want you to take the money, lay it on top of me and just light the whole thing on fire. <laughs> and they were like, why, why, why are you gonna burn them? I said, what do you mean? It's fine. And so what are you gonna do with it? The point is when you're dead, you're not gonna be able to do anything with it. So just having another fancy car or, or nice, you know, whatever. I, I wanna be able to pay my bills. I wanna be able to do whatever I want. But ultimately, like you said early on with the questions, like I'm a workaholic maniac anyway, just like my buddy I described. So I like to work. If I'm going to work like crazy and money's not that important, I might as well be doing something good. The best we could do on this planet is help people. I'm not a soup kitchen guy. And so this is my, this is my soup kitchen, right? If I can get people to get off the couch, get healthy, sweating and feeling good, then I'm like, to your point, I've found my purpose. Yeah, that's amazing. Last question for this first part of the discussion. For that guy who maybe, or girl who's listening and they're like feeling, man, I need to do that. I need to take that next step. Well, what's maybe a tip where they're, they're feeling like they should, but they're just trying to, to motivate themselves. What would you t tell that person? I guess I would say, again, I'm gonna sound like a late nights TV pitch man. Just sign up because once you sign up, you know, you just gave me an idea, a marketing idea. I probably should do something where if you sign up and then change your mind, I'll just give you your money back. Because once you sign up, it sets a whole series of things in motion. And because otherwise you sit and pontificate, talk yourself out of it, do the analysis, talk to friends, I'm not in shape, come up with a hundred reasons why you can't do it. Look, we get a couple of million people a month to the website globally, right? Two million people a month, only a hundred thousand people a month sign up. So 1.9 million people, assuming each one of them are unique, and I can't really track that because after a month, you can't track cookies, whatever, right? So, it's, so let's just assume for a second, it's 2 million uniques 
100,000 sign up, 1.9 million people are the woman you describe or a man you describe, which is, I'm not sure. And they talk themselves out of it. So what happens? They just get stuck in their life and they do the same thing and they expect different results. You heard it here first, folks. Sign up. Okay. So besides going to Spartan.com and signing up, Joe, where can people, where else can people follow you, check out your social? What's, what's the best places? I have no idea, but they could check out our books. They could go to the Spartan Up podcast on YouTube or iTunes. Check out the books. They could shoot me an email, joe at spartan.com. We have Instagram. I don't know all this hand, the handles and all that <laughs> stuff. You could find, just Google Spartan and something will come up. And if you don't have the money, but you really want to make a change, just email me. The other thing is I have a farm. My wife and I have a farm in Vermont, 700 acres. I'm happy to create a transformational experience for anybody. Just show up on the farm. I'll kick your butt for a day or a year or whatever you want. Nobody shows up. My wife had a heart attack. I invited 5 million people to the farm. Nobody shows up. 20, 20 people show up because nobody wants to do the work. If I said, come to the farm, I have cotton candy, Netflix, big screen TV, everybody be there. <laughs> I love it. While you were busy trying to climb stairs with your kettlebell and everything, he and I were sitting here watching your interview with Richard Branson. And you've got this YouTube channel. It's, I think you've got 14 million views. And it's become such a phenomenon. I see people wear your shirts like it's a badge of honor. Can you talk about your philosophy when it comes to marketing? First of all, I'm an idiot. I'm a Flintstone when it comes to technology and all this stuff. But things that really jumped out at me early on when, when we got into this business, because my previous businesses didn't require all this digital stuff, were, holy smokes, if we could buy a billboard that stayed up forever, that would be an interesting proposition for a company because it's always there. You don't have to pay month. Like, just put it up and it stays forever. If I could buy a billboard that stays up forever and follows the car around, wow, that's even more interesting, right? So it became obvious to me that digital is incredible because I can follow you and present this billboard in front of your face, hopefully at the opportune time. Now, now let's go back to what we said earlier. I'm selling hard work. I'm selling commitment. I'm selling challenge. I'm selling something that's really hard to sell. So even putting that billboard in front of you at that moment doesn't necessarily get you to commit because it's going to require you to go to bed earlier. It's going to require you to put the, the wine, the extra glass of wine down. So now I got to create videos in that billboard that hopefully inspire you to push the button. But the reality is nine out of 10 of you are not going to push the button. So what I found was how do I appeal with those videos and that traveling billboard to the, what Malcolm Gladwell calls these, these connectors, these early adopters. And it just naturally happened. There was nothing genius we did. We made good video. We put it all over the digital ecosystem. We followed people. We weren't even sophisticated on who we followed. I think it was so interesting to folks. They heard my authenticity, which you described earlier, and a couple of them decided to come out. And then, and then we had a product that was incredible. What's great about our product is the worse it is, the better it is. So like, you can't, Oh my God, this was terrible. How are you going to complain? Our whole message is Spartan up. <laughs> There's nothing you can complain about, right? So our NPS scores are ridiculous off the charts. Only things, you know, Apple would dream of because nobody's allowed to complain. And so great content. The problem is the reason Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, the reason these valuations are so tremendous, Amazon for these companies is because they've got, they've cornered the market. And so it gets more and more expensive for me, for us to present that really cool content to people throughout the digital ecosystem. So that's a challenge. 
but, but I, you know, I'm, we're not that smart. My team is, I'm not that smart. And we didn't do anything earth shattering. We, we create great content. We hang out with people like Richard Branson. We're completely authentic. We try to get it in front of you. You come out, it's completely transformable, transformational. And so then you invite 20 friends to the next race. That's it. Well, you know, it's funny how much you talk about content. I think one of my favorite of our 300 episodes we've done so far was Joe Paluzzi, who started the Content Marketing Institute. And, you know, his latest book, The Killing Marketing One, he says, like, basically, quit making fluffy content marketing and make stuff so good you're competing with the mainstream media. And, you know, I'm looking at your website and you've got people overcoming cancer and Cressa Peterson here, you know, at 51, who's doing this stuff. And then you're you know, your podcast, you've got Gary Vaynerchuk and Tim Ferriss and Richard Branson. And it is of a quality that, you know, I, I'm happy to watch this instead of something on entrepreneur.com or Business Insider or something like this. Like, can you talk about the idea of maybe not just making a post for a post's sake so you can have ha- more output, but the quality that you're doing here? I think it's, I think it's, not exactly as you described, because the quality of the content is not in the production. But I don't think that's what you're saying, right? Because I do, I just had this conversation early this morning with my team, which is in this world, we've got to move faster and high production value stuff, stuff that NBC would do or whatever, which is overpriced and ridiculous and, and too polished. Uh, we can't move fast enough. So you could shoot all this stuff on a phone but just make sure that the people in, in, the, in the frame are Richard Branson, Gary Vee, cancer survivors, et cetera. So the content, am I saying this correct? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's like the, that's what I mean is like the intrinsic quality of the message. I'm not saying the production yeah. value. I'm saying that like I watch that and I might actually do something different because I watched that. I wasn't just passing time. Wait until you see what I have coming. I can't even give you a sneak look. Wait until you see our next iteration of content that's coming. We're going to really shake things up. Okay, we'll have to have you back on the show after that's out and you can tell us about it. I would love it. My team right now is in Africa, by the way. We are with a bunch of Kenyan runners that uh, we're building obstacles for them and trying to get some of the fastest runners in the world to our races. And we're filming that, so that's fun content. That's amazing. As you look at your entrepreneurial career and, and some of the things you've learned, what do you, would you say are some of the key lessons? Like if you had to say, here are the three things I would tell any entrepreneur or someone who's wanting to do something that puts them outside their comfort zone, what would be those couple of things? What would be the things I would tell an entrepreneur to get themselves out of the comfort zone in business? Yeah. Yeah. Like the key lessons you've learned during your career that you would want to pass on to maybe someone who's just starting. Well, I would say the number one mistake I see most entrepreneurs make is they focus on the wrong things. The only thing that matters is sales. Make sure you've got an incredible product. Make sure you're making sales. I see lots and lots, actually most people, the majority of people focus on tweaking it. The same way you and I talked earlier about folks that sit still and can't get going and and discuss and pontificate and analyze going to do a race someday and never actually do it. Most, Most business people do that. And so my experience, there's lots of different experiences, lots of ways to do this. My experience has been just start selling first. Make sure you've got people that are paying you, that are engaged with the product. You could always iterate, make the product better, but don't sit around and work something to death before you even know. If you, because the marketplace is going to give you feedback and you're going to adjust yeah. and edit and pivot. And so I'm a big fire ready aim guy. That's great. Why do you think that's such a challenge for entrepreneurs? Like, what is it in in us that 
makes us want to just sit and perfect things first? I'll tell you why. It's really simple. You don't want to start, you don't want to put your shoes on and start running. Like I have my kids, my kids each have a, a little business that I, that I basically force them to start <laughs> and they have to go out on the beach during the summer and they got to try to sell their products, their t-shirts, their hats. Like it's hard. You go up to 92 people and 91 of them say no, right? That's why entrepreneurs don't want to, they, you don't want to really, you don't want to actually start feeling pain for 4k into the 5k. So you don't start. You don't do it, but it's, it, it is the most important thing to do. Can you make the sale? Now, three or four or 10 or 100 or even 1,000 people are not gonna kill your product if it's not perfect. You're gonna learn and you edit, right? And you just iterate as you're moving, as you're gaining momentum, but you don't sit around and do nothing and discuss the launch that you might be doing in the future, the race you might do. No, I, my advice, maybe smarter people than me would give you different advice. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I notice it's almost an addiction to daydreaming. I have friends who are always, oh, I'm gonna start this and I'm gonna do this. And, I'm, and, and it's like, yeah, but you're just addicted to the daydream. You're, you're, not, you're not addicted. I, I've noticed when you start selling and people start telling me no, there's that piece of me that's like, I'm gonna prove you wrong. Like, I, I'm going to go do it, and then I'm going to come back and show you, yeah, I went and did it, and you said I couldn't. And I think that's another power of, of starting to sell that kind of awakens that, that competitor in, in each entrepreneur that's like, okay, you just told me it's impossible, and that awakens this part of me that, that's like, I don't believe that it's impossible, so I'm going to go do it and prove you wrong. So I Exactly. Think that's, that's awesome. You know, thinking about this idea of sales and you know, it's pretty hard for somebody to buy something from us if they don't know we exist, right? And so getting the word out, the content you're doing, you know, your podcast is, has done so well. You know, Jay makes these Dollar Shave Club kind of videos at his agency creatively. You know, Jay's got 200 million views for his customers out there um, wow. across all these YouTube videos he's made. But one of the things I'm really fascinated with is books. I have recommended Spartan Up to so many people. I'm a real audiobook nerd. I've done maybe I don't know, 900 audiobooks in the last 12 years. And yours wow. is so high up there for me. I've, I've got all sorts of people to read it. There are so many books created every year and so few have the success that yours have had. What, what kind of insights to that part of the content game do you have? I mean, Spartan Up, the first book, I just was writing my story. So again, it goes back to that authenticity of, I don't know if anybody was going to read it. I even had a tough time reading it, right? Because it's my own story. And I had to read it 500 times to try to edit it. And then even after you write it and you think it's okay enough to go to the market, it's not like one of your partner's videos. I mean, it's hard to get a book out there and publishers don't do that much. So it was, I would say it was knife fighting. It was hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was literally begging people to, to read it, to buy it for their company, calling in favors. And then it got some momentum and then it got somebody like you to read it. So it, you know, if you're out there and you're thinking of doing a book and you think it's going to be easy, I would say, think twice. I'd rather you go run a race because, because a book, a book is hard work. And that's just the beginning. Like then you got to market the damn thing and there's nobody out there that helps you. Maybe I would have did one of those Dollar Shave Club videos had I known your partner. <laughs> maybe it would have helped me sell the buck. <laughs> well, maybe going a slightly different direction. For those of us who are entrepreneurs, who are goers, I I've been thinking about a quote. You had an Epictetus quote in Spartan Up about this idea of, and I wish I could quote it verbatim, but it was about distraction. And it was about this idea of that we, we basically let ourselves get distracted and go to lesser things by not having focus on the best things. Can you talk yeah. about, you know, folks like me with ADD that keep saying, well, I could do that one too. Let's, you know, instead of like knocking this domino over first and then starting the next business, starting three at once kind of stuff. 
Can you talk about the discipline to stick with what you're doing until you get that one done? There is a time when you're supposed to pivot, but that's a really tough one. It's kind of like quitting a race, right? Or, or in your example, the question you're asking, when do you quit a business or do you just stick with it till no, the end? My question is, I've got something, it's working, and then I get like the shiny penny syndrome and it's like, squirrel, oh, let's do that one too. And instead of like sticking with what I've got until it's over the finish line, I, I take on too many things when realistically that's probably not a good strategy. Yeah, I have the same syndrome. I think a, a lot of... Um, entrepreneurs have that syndrome, but I always go back to like, what are my big rocks? I got to get done today. I got to get done this week. I got to get done this month, this year. And do they align? Like my mind just works this way. Do they align with the question or the mission? And, and for us, it's getting hundred million people healthy. So if, if that shiny thing pops up and it doesn't align with these things, I got to check off and get done, which, which ultimately ladders up to getting hundred million, I'm probably not going to do it. I'm an instinctual entrepreneur. I'll be in Hawaii at one of our races and I see an opportunity for a business. There's a piece of land for sale and I could turn it into a surf park or whatever. Like, and I have to slap myself. No, it does not align with, <laughs> with and ladder up to the things. So I think we're very, we're all like that. And you just have to have this pyramid. And if that pyramid doesn't feel good anymore, if changing a hundred million lives doesn't feel good anymore and you really want to build surf parks, well then sell that thing or give it to somebody, do something, right? And focus on that, that the next thing, because, because multitasking businesses or, or projects that aren't aligned and are in different, like you got to hand it to Elon Musk. I mean, rockets, cars, digging holes. That's unbelievable, <laughs> right? Yeah. But who knows? Maybe, maybe the stock would be $500 if he wasn't doing rockets and boring holes. Yeah. That's, I think, great advice for all of us with the entrepreneurial ADD that we all have. As you were talking earlier about kind of working with your kids, I saw a great Gary V video where he was kind of telling the same thing, same, same kind of idea where he's telling people, you know, tell your kids either to go start a business and they have until July 4th this summer to, to make $2,000 or go work at Walmart and learn what it's like, you know, to work a really tough, not tough, but like a, a job that's not going to fulfill you. And what what do you see as a parent? How do you instill some of those values? How do you motivate your children to push themselves and really get outside of their comfort zone? Tough to do. The jury's still out. We won't know until my oldest is, you know, 17 or 18. He's 13 now. But I, again, I think back to myself. I think back to when I was in my preteens, I had a business. I started to learn all these things. I started to get feedback from customers, people that didn't pay me because I did a bad job, people that did pay me because I had a good job, people that recommended me. And how do I take the good and instill that in the children and leave out the bad? And hard to do because they're not growing up in the same time and place that we did. I think, I think what you got to do, and by the way, I sound like a tough parent. My kids ran a marathon at eight years old, or seven years old. They ran... My kids work out every single day. They're allowed to watch TV as long as it's a Mandarin. I'm tough and I'm still a pussycat. I'm still a kitten <laughs> when it comes, because they're my kids and I love them. But, you know, a guy gave me great advice when I had my first, I said, he said, you're going to be faced with decisions all day, every day with kids. Always choose the hard way. That's and I think that's, advice. I think that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I know we're kind of winding down here for part two. You obviously, you know, get interviewed by the media a lot, 60 Minutes and Forbes and all this stuff. What's the question people aren't asking you? What's a, what's a soapbox thing that you would like to talk about more that maybe doesn't come up as often? That's a great question. I feel like I'm talking all day, every day. So I'm kind of, what do I want to talk about more? 
I love to talk about kids. Not a lot of people ask me about kids. So thank you for that. I do love talking about business. We covered that. Here's a silly one. I think we should, let's get into burpees. I'm sure I've talked about it with everybody, but we'll talk about it. Let's talk about kettlebells. How's that? (laughs) I think you should ask me, we should talk about everybody should be carrying a frigging kettlebell. It sounds ridiculous, but like, think about the number one reason why people don't, I don't have time. I don't go to the gym. I don't have time. I have a gym membership. If we all carried around a little weight, it could be 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 45 pounds in my case. Think about how much healthier the whole country would be, right? It seems ridiculous at, at first glance, but that's just because not a lot of people are doing it yet. But, but if we carried around a heavy weight, we all walk a couple of miles a day, even inactive, you, right? You walk a couple of miles a day, you take the stairs and, tell, and you've got this weight that you're carrying around and you're able to lift over your I've done a few things with the kettlebell here while I've been on the phone with you. So, <laughs> okay. So here's what you need to hire Jay's firm to make your Dollar Shave Club video. The Spartan Race branded kettlebell that that's like goes with your briefcase, you know, that where you, you take your, you take your bag, you take your computer bag and your kettlebell everywhere. You, this is, this is the birth of this people. I'm happy to do a video, but <laughs> my kettlebell has been to a hundred countries <laughs> and every country treats it differently. Interesting. In the United States, they don't care. They just throw it on the belt. And what happens on the belt, you can imagine it then rolls down the angled belt down below. It smashes into the stainless steel carousel. It almost takes out a customs officer. I've had it happen. Versus you're in Japan and they wrap it beautifully in <laughs> bubble wrap and they box it. And then a beautiful petite woman carries it feverishly over to a cart, right? Or you're in the Middle East and they mumble to you in some language that means like it's up to God whether or not you'll see the kettlebell again. (laughs) (laughs) Or in India, they stick it in somebody else's suitcase. Not kidding. And they point to the suitcase and you have to find that suitcase when you get to the other side before the person that owns the suitcase finds it and finds out everything in it is smashed (laughs) because the kettlebell is inside. So that's the video. And, And by the way, it's like we're not even making it up. That's what I experience on a daily basis. And then how many times that I've lost 12 kettlebells, literally. They lose them. And Boston is the culprit. Boston, they, I think there's a guy there collecting, there's probably a gym being built right, built right near the friggin' Boston airport from my kettlebells. I love it. Okay, well, I'm seeing the Spartan wall ball. I'm seeing the mat rollers. I'm, I'm hoping to see kettlebells here on the Spartan.com website sometime soon. Let's do it. Okay, listen, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Any, any closing comment, any advice you would have given a younger version of yourself or what do you want to close with here? Younger version of myself, eat less processed food, train seven days a week and save your money. Love it. Okay, everybody, go to Spartan.com and commit. Sign up. Thanks so much for listening today to The Jay Davis Show. We'll catch you next time.